welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tie there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. I'll just wait for you to catch up. To praise God in loud voices. Hallelujah. <laughs> for all the miracles he had, they had seen. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's too late. <laughs> it's a little late now, but thank you anyway. And this is what they proclaim, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the story that today in the calendar of the church we are celebrating. And um, I'm going to take a few minutes of your time just to share a couple of thoughts on how I think this can be important for us to consider in our lives today. It's a story where after a long period of time, the disciples are starting to see the impact that Jesus is having. And they're really, really excited. Not as excited as you, but really, really excited. Okay. And they're celebrating and rejoicing. And not only are they celebrating and rejoicing, as they move towards Jerusalem, the great city Jerusalem, they start to gather people, and people are also celebrating and rejoicing. This was the moment they had hoped for. This was the kingdom coming. This was the evidence that he was who he says he is, and he was going to do what he promised he will do. But there's a word that's sung out over this gathering, this excitement. It's the word Hosanna. And that word in this context simply means this, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. But I want to suggest to you that whatever we learn from the story that's here, it's certainly not that Jesus saved them now. That might have been their declaration, it might have been their aspiration, but actually that didn't take place at all. In fact, some of their expectations as you read through the narrative, you start to see were far from fulfilled. The salvation they were crying for, they demanded it be instant. Now, current, present. They wanted the power of God to fill their hearts and their lives. And they wanted the Roman Empire to be overcome. And Jesus didn't seem to be moved by that agenda or indeed controlled by what other people seemed to think salvation looked like. What becomes very clear as you read this scripture is what people expected the kingdom to be or to look like, actually, it was quite different. They presumed all kinds of things regarding Jesus. Now, I don't have to be a mind reader, but I have been around church a little 
longer than some people who are new to the faith, and I realized a couple of things about how we as Pentecostals interact with God. Have you ever prayed and asked God to do something and expect the answer to be in your mailbox by the time you get home? Give me an honest wave, please. Have you ever presumed that Jesus might turn up in a particular way or solve a particular problem for you without you having to lift a finger or even pray a second prayer for that to come about? Give me a wave if that's you. Well, it would seem to me that probably we are a little like the people in the crowd. We might get, if we're not careful, a bit disappointed, a bit disillusioned with what we expect the kingdom to look like because we like an instant kingdom. We like everything to happen suddenly. But it would seem to me as you read this story that in spite of the agenda of the crowd, Jesus came with a completely different kingdom in mind. This wasn't the kingdom that was spectacular with fireworks and grandiose notions and gestures. This seems to have been a kingdom that was submersive and humble and beautiful and powerful, yet alone quite simple. So if Palm Sunday is about anything, it's about disappointment. People's expectations of their God, the way they expect him to work and operate. You see, this is the story of the God we all want, the God of power and might who will smite our enemies, the mighty smiter in the sky, the God who comes quickly, instantly, righting the wrongs that's done to you and me. In fact, what we've done here is we've made a God in our own image because we as human beings consistently need to be rescued. We're shouting out to him in our current situations, save now, now God, hear God, miracles now God, power evident God, do it God, do it, I know you can do it. We want everything he offers quickly. No process, no unpacking, no walking with him until victory is found We want the God of the suddenly to wave his heavenly magic wand and make all things good. Come now, let your glory fall. You see, they're rejoicing in what they want the salvation to look like. But Jesus offers something quite different. You see, the king that they are worshiping is not the king that's amongst them. Oh, Jesus is the king but he's a very different king. And what I find interesting about this story is Jesus knew that everybody in this moment, including his own closest friends, would misunderstand what was taking place. And right at the forefront of his mind, in presenting himself to the world that's waiting for instant salvation, he informs his disciples to go and find a donkey to carry him. Now, a donkey is not the the animal that a king would ride upon, not somebody of notoriety or fame or importance. The donkey was the symbol of normality. It was the working animal in most families that did the heavy labor and brought about some kind of, you know, simple production of crops or, or farming. And so Jesus 
without really telling them or showing them or declaring to them how different a king he truly is than the one that they want, he demonstrates it by asking them to bring him a donkey. And it was indeed a prophecy that was many, many hundreds of years before that the Messiah would come into his manifest glory on the back of a colt. Now, while Jesus is coming in, demonstrating his humility, demonstrating his simplicity, demonstrating how ordinary, if you like, yet extraordinary, this king and his kingdom is. He comes from the east of the city. The east of the city symbolizes the dawning of a new era, the dawning of a new day. The sun always rises in the east. And what Jesus is saying in these moments, prophetically for us, is there is a new king and a new kingdom that's come. There's a dawning of a new era and a new age. Not the age of the power of man or the dominant kingdom of the Roman Empire, but a submersive, humble, honest, pure king who rides in simplicity and walks amongst the majority. There is a king amongst you who has come with power that lasts. On the west side of the city, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but in research I found this out, there is coming another king. And this king is the Roman emperor who always came into the city at these moments to make sure that the, the Jewish people were kept in their rightful place. And in stark contrast to the king who comes on the donkey, there's a king who comes with fanfare. Power and might are his sound bites. Surrounded by trumpet blasts and myriads of soldiers, all begging to do his will, he comes in all his finery, in all his dominant glory, in all his profound authority, and he's coming from the west side of the city. So on this day, as we listen to this story afresh, we realized that there are two kings and maybe two kingdoms. Now what has that got to do with you and what has that got to do with me? I think just about every moment of every day in my life, I think these two kingdoms present themselves to me. I can either choose to walk and work with the king of humility, or I can choose to walk or work with the king who wants to dominate everything. When we look at our newsreels today, we see that there are people in our world who think that domination is the only way to subdue or to bring together their plan or their purpose. And that's not new. History is riddled with people who rose and fell, who came and went. People who exerted their power and their authority, dominating, controlling, manipulating, exploiting all kinds of people. And that represents to us the Roman Empire. And I want to let you know it still exists in spiritual form today. There is a world in which we live where that dominance, that desire to overtake and overwhelm and completely, in powerful ways, undermine human decision-making processes, lives in your day-to-day -day existence, in your workplace, perhaps even in your marriage, in your family, and sometimes, sadly, even in the church. Rome is not dead. It is alive and well in human hearts and seeks absolute control and authority over all things. Now, I know you would never be guilty of partnering with Rome. 
But cast your mind back across this week. Has there not been a moment where you wanted to execute your authority? A moment when you wanted to supersede someone's decision-making? Has there not been a moment where you controlled the situation to your advantage? Hello? That kingdom is alive and well and sadly thriving in our world. And we are so accustomed to it, we don't question it. But that's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is humble. It looks seemingly insufficient or even weak, broken perhaps, too simple for our complicated, sophisticated minds. Not only is there two kingdoms, there are always two kings, the one who dominates and the one who serves. And I get to choose which one I partner with, moment by moment, day by day, as I live my life. What Jesus is saying by riding into the city, the place and the seat of authority on a donkey, is I'm here with you. Not above you. Not even before you. I'm here with you. I'm just like one of you. However, I'm not. I am the king of glory. What Jesus is saying riding on a donkey is, I know how you live and the struggles and the strifes that you experience. And so I choose to not identify with the kingdom of dominance, but with those who are subjected to hardship and pain and suffering and brokenness and need. What Jesus is saying is this. God has come amongst us. He may look quite like us, but what he has for us will change everything about us. He's saying, I brought my kingdom with me. I brought everything I have. Humility, love, long-suffering. And I've come to you in a submissive way. It always used to puzzle me that if God wanted to impact the world, why he chose a virgin in a backwater town whose name nobody would have known had it not been for what happened to her, in a place where no one thought anything good could ever come about, and God planted in the womb of a 14 or 15-year-old girl the answer to the human condition. God is not full of bravado. By the way, that's the devil. While we're looking for the spectacular, we might miss the pure. While we're dominated by being entertained by the majestic, we might miss the majesty in the moments that Christ affords to you and me as we walk with him in step with his humility. God doesn't need to show off to draw a crowd. He's not trying to impress our world by any way or by any means. In fact, he's breathtaking without any of that pomp and ceremony. And so the donkey best represents the humility of the God 
who comes amongst man, who understands the pain and suffering that man experiences, and in a submersive way offers a kingdom that brings life. It's so profound, I think, so often I miss it. A couple of years ago, I was working with a large church somewhere, and I was sitting in a room trying to help some leaders grapple with some big questions around the nature and the character of God. I think one of the greatest, most profound teachings that is necessary in our church life today is to remind people that God is good. And what I mean by that is not that they have some kind of theological agreement to that truth, but they have an expectation. They are living with this expectation that the goodness of God will invade every part of their lives. And so we were sitting with a bunch of leaders and um, it felt to me in the moment that the Jesus I was talking about just wasn't enough. He just wasn't enough for these young men, a whole bunch of young men. And you know, you know, young men like power, don't they? Don't they? They go to the gym and they beef themselves up so they look powerful. I mean, they can't open a crisp packet, but they look powerful. <laughs> People want to be impressive, don't they? They want to look the part, even if they're not the part. They want to drive the flash car, though they can't pay the mortgage. Oh, sorry. It's the way of the man, isn't it? To make himself bigger than he really is. For all kinds of reasons, that seems important. And so I'm working with these really highly motivated and incredibly intelligent and profoundly good at their job people, and it just twigs, it just twigs to me. Something's missing here. Their understanding of Jesus has been shaped by their self. They want beefed up Jesus. <laughs> they want the God who punches the devil's lights out instantly. No conversation necessary. So I'm trying to appeal to them about the nature and the character of the humility and the purity and the, the vulnerability of Jesus. And it's like I'm speaking a completely different language. So I come home, I say to Jane over a cup of tea and five vodkas. <laughs> she's given up now, she's all right. What is that? What is that? And she looks at me, bemused, and she says, Oh, Simon, you love the Jesus that looks after widows and orphans. That's the Jesus you love. I thought, yes, it is. And she says, they love the Jesus that turns over tables. And that was true. You see, we can be in the same room shouting Hosanna, and have a very different version of Jesus, can't we? We can be saying, Lord, save, and have a very different sense of what that could look like. We can declare that God is good, and yet have no process to expect, receive, or partner with his goodness. Salvation has come, but it looks very different somehow to different people. What I believe Jesus is offering us is far more profound 
than a spectacle of power. What I believe he offers to us is a king who loves and a king who serves. And I believe also he's offering us a kingdom that lasts. Not one that has instant power, but one whose power increases continually and consistently. As the scriptures remind us, and his kingdom will have no end. When I see the power of the world and the power of the dominant ones and the power of the powerful ones, I realize it's quite fleeting and sadly very short term in the way it manifests itself. But the one who stands in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, who is not embarrassed to be carried by a donkey, comes with a power that has no limits and no end. And it keeps on manifesting itself in ordinary lives like yours and mine. And it must have been quite a powerful experience when people met Jesus. Let me explain to you why. For the Roman Empire, they had to beat people into submission. Jesus simply invited them. For the Romans, the full-time job was keeping the Jews where they needed them to be in the societal structures. It was an all-day, everyday, consistent reality for those in any form of authority in that geographical region. But Jesus simply said, follow me. And not only did they follow him, they gave up everything they had to ensure they didn't miss him. Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene. All of these individuals Jesus never beat or provoked or controlled or manipulated into following him. They simply saw the king of glory and they had every ounce of desire to follow after this king. This kingdom is a kingdom of invitation. You have to be invited in. You can't force your way through the door. You can't save yourself. You can't impose yourself upon God. He simply says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden. The qualification of entry into the kingdom is a recognition that you are weak. That you are insufficient in yourself. That your power is so unpalatable in comparison to the life and the love and the joy and the peace that Jesus can give. The biggest issue that we're facing in society is coming to terms with our own humanity. Jesus never pushed. He never pulled. He never manipulated. He didn't promise them all kinds of wealth and value and significance. He simply said, come. No demands, just an invitation. So when he rides into this city, he does so, I believe, in his truest nature. What's happening here is the disrobing of earthly power and the revealing of heavenly power. 
In this moment, we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords demonstrate such a humility that no one who didn't have a heart who understood God could ever truly comprehend. And in fact, as we look at this story, we see over and over again that this becomes the issue. In just about a week's time after this, the same people who shouted Hosanna are shouting crucify him. Because the power that they desired was self-advancement. They wanted to be powerful themselves. They'd seen the demonstration of the Roman Empire, and they wanted that authority. They thought by having that authority, they'd have security. And when Jesus didn't fulfill what they hoped he would fulfill, the kingdom didn't come in all that they expected it to, where the Romans weren't overturned, and their release and freedom wasn't tangible and evident and instant, they were able to shout to the same God, to the same king, crucify him. You see, if my relationship with Jesus is about me, I am not beyond shouting, crucify him. If I think that this whole thing is about me, then I'll use God to take every advantage over other people in this world. When the Bible says that the church is the head and not the tail, it's not talking about a domineering group of people who subdue the earth with control, manipulation, and power. It's talking about scattered servants whose hearts are so in love with their master they would even die for the sake of his kingdom. Humble, available, amongst us, not seeking to rule over us, coming alongside us, being with us. A God not coming to correct people, but a God who came to connect with people. A God whose purest heart is to avail himself to those, the masses who need rescuing, who need salvation. But it's not an instant thing, it's a progressive thing. And God always works in that manner. You see, what you believe, what I believe about Jesus, it shapes everything about how I live, everything about how I pray, everything about how I act in the world around me. Not a horse, but a donkey. Not a dominant king, but a servant king. Not a ruler who wants to subdue everything, but the king of glory who came to lift everything out of the mire and the clay. So we shout, Hosanna, God save us. I don't know what salvation you need today. But the king is here. He's right here. And when we're looking for fanfares and trumpet blasts and loud sounds and demonstrations of talent and perfection and all of that stuff, it would be tragic if we missed him. The king on the back of a donkey is here with us. And he came and he's here to serve you and to heal you and to restore you. Forgive me, I'll be cheeky for a moment. It's not like me. <laughs> I think sometimes when we're worshiping God, we're trying to make something happen. That's partnering with the kingdom of Rome. 
We all want to be impressive. It's human nature, I think. Our fallen human nature, perhaps. You never have to make something happen in worship. Do you know why? Because the king is here. And something already is happening. I may not see it. I perhaps don't always understand it. But he's with his people. Where two or more gather in the midst he shall be. It's not about who sings the loudest or how majestic our musical ability is. The, the key to releasing and partnering with the Spirit is always stepping away from things and saying, God, I know you're here. What are you doing? And can I be part of that? Serving the one who serves is the greatest goal of all who lead worship and are part of that. So we don't have to try and stoke ourselves up with big songs. Amen? In fact, if you want to find out where God is, you probably need to dial it down a little bit. Because in amongst all the noise, it becomes very difficult to hear a still, small voice. Amen? And so, salvation is here. The king, maybe not the king that you want, <laughs> but certainly the king that you've been given, is here. The humble one. The gracious one. The kind one. The one who loves unconditionally. The one whose kingdom knows no end whose power will rule and reign over many centuries, if not for all eternity. He doesn't come, he doesn't go. He isn't popular, he isn't unpopular. He is who he says he is. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. And don't miss him looking for a king that you think should act the way you think a king should act. Find out, find him, allow him to ride into your life on a donkey. Don't miss it for one second because the minute you let him in, he'll invite you to a kingdom that has no end. And its rule and its reign may be submersive or even simple, but it has the most profound effect on human hearts and has and continues to transform this world. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Stand with me, please. Would you mind closing your eyes as I read the scripture over you? Would you mind? After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up towards Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as the king went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road was down towards Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. This is what they said. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd were disgruntled and said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. King of glory, this is your story. And we will not impose upon it our story. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no kingdom greater than yours. There could never be more, any king who is more glorious than you are, Jesus. And we bow our knee before you today. As you are humbly available to us, we make ourselves humbly available to you. Lord, we take off our outer garments spiritually, those things that we wear to impress the world, the parts of our nature and character that are ego-driven and always want to be seen or recognized or valued. And we place them under the donkey. We place them on the ground. And we ask, Lord God, that you would trample them until they are nothing. We pray, Father, every vain imagination that drives our lives, that dominates our thinking, all that posturing of the human heart, Lord God, seeking for significance in all the wrong places, we place it under your feet, Lord God. We say, King of glory, come. King of glory, come down. King of glory, rewrite the story of my life. King of glory, be unto me. Be unto me, Lord. Let it be according to your will. And if you who are humble and you who have made yourself lowly are the king who transforms hearts, then Lord, help us to humble our hearts and make ourselves lowly. It's counterintuitive. We think, Lord God, that we have to rise up to be someone. But Lord, in your kingdom, we have to lie down. Finally, Lord, in the story of Jacob, he lay down. When your church lies down, you rise up, O oh God. You even say in the Psalm 23, Lord God, you make me lie down in green pastures. Such is the situations that I face, Lord God. I have nowhere to go but on my knees before you and allow you to demonstrate your power. No bravado. No persona. Just honest me, broken me, wearied me with my wonderful God. And now from that posture of humility, I shout Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest heavens. From that posture, Lord, of bending my will and my knee and my heart before you, I shout Hosanna to the King of glory. Hosanna to the King of Glory. Jesus, Jesus, come. Come amongst your people, Lord. In your hiddenness, let your manifestation become apparent. Lord, we're still toying with the idea that we can, we can grasp this world with our power. But your word declares it's not by might and it's not by power. But it is by your spirit, O oh God. And what is your spirit? The very spirit of Jesus. The spirit of humility. 
the spirit of supplication, the spirit who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself even unto death on a cross. And look what you did for Jesus. You raised him up. You raised him up, but he first had to be crushed. He first had to be buried. He first had to die. Forgive us, Lord, when we have demanded you to perform for us. Forgive us, Lord, when we have spoken to you in ways that are blind and ignorant to who you are. Forgive us, Lord, when we have imposed our will upon your name. Forgive us, Lord. When we asked for your kingdom to come, what we meant really was our kingdom to flourish. Forgive us, Lord. We've been so busy trying to make a name for ourselves. We've forgotten how sacred it is to speak your name. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Why don't you lift your voice and just clear your soul as you get ready for Easter next week, which, by the way, the same people were shouting, Hosanna, are now shouting, kill him. That's the fickle heart of man who didn't get what they wanted, suddenly they turn on Jesus. Just begin to clear your heart, to say, Lord, I'm here. Prepare me for all that you want to say and all that you want to do. And King of glory, will you come? Will you come in your humility, in your beauty, in your availability, in your purity, in your majesty, for your kingdom, your kingdom, Lord, will be established on the earth. Amen. Your kingdom, Lord, establish your kingdom in me, Lord. Amen. Lord, establish your kingdom in my family. All the dominant striving and tension and competition, I pray it would die in my family, Lord. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth in my family as it is in heaven. And Lord, let your kingdom come in this church. Sadly, Lord God, this striving and this Romanist kind of approach to whoever shouts the loudest gets the most. Lord, I pray there's no room for that in this church. Jesus, we renounce any allegiance, any partnerships we've had with that kind of spirit, Lord. We don't want the domineering thing to happen. Authority is not about that. Kingdom authority is about raising people, not putting people down. God, I pray for the church across the city and the nation that godly authority will become apparent in your gatherings, in your communities, Lord God. Godly authority. For Jesus came with his sole intent, Lord, is to raise others to life, even though he himself was here to die. I don't want to be the one who shouts crucify him when I was the one who shouted Hosanna in the highest heavens just because you don't do it the way I want it done in the time I want it done with the outcomes I want to see does not make you inferior in fact, God, it makes you superior because you know the end before the beginning. 
you are the Omega as much as you are the Alpha. Amen. Just thank him. Will you thank him, church? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside And show me and fill me oh, and lead me to for you are holy there is no one like you there is none beside you open up our eyes God to see you as you are Jesus and show me Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of glory. Hosanna to the God of love. 
Hosanna to the one who will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. But the one who has come in humility to release the captive and make them no longer a prisoner. Hosanna to the God who knows and the God who cares and the God who stays even when the world stares. Hosanna to the God who is and was and is to come and whose kingdom knows no end. Hosanna to the King of glory, the one we like to call our friend. Hosanna to the God who finished everything he starts. Hosanna to the one who lives in each of our hearts. Hosanna to the one who prepares a table before us, even in the midst of our adversity. Hosanna to the one who comes that we might share in his glory. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heavens. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heavens, in the highest heavens. And may your glory fill the earth, Jesus. And now, to this Jesus, the one who is able to do immeasurably more than right now we can even ask or even imagine, be glory in his church. Lift your hands, just receive that truth. He will produce glory in his church. That's you, by the way. Glory in his church. Come on, come on. He will produce glory in his church. Hallelujah. He will produce glory in his church. Thank you, Jesus. And in Christ Jesus. And listen to how long this kingdom will last. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a great week.